passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, everyone. It's John Pollock, and this is your UFC 297 review from the card that went down on Saturday night from the Scotiabank Arena in Toronto, Ontario. It was it was certainly not the card of the year, but it was an event that had many, many stories going in, many stories coming out of it. The key ones being that we have a new UFC middleweight champion in Drickus Duplessis, who defeated Sean Strickland on Saturday night in a very close fight that can be argued both ways, and we'll get into that and the breakdown of that fight. And Raquel Pennington becoming the newest UFC Women's Bantamweight Champion. She defeating Myra Bueno Silva by unanimous decision and continues the, the lineage at 135 pounds. We will talk about that as well. Not a great night for Team Canada as the the sole women that got their arms raised. Jasmine Jazdavicius and Jillian Robertson uh, were the only ones to represent Canadians with W's because all of the male Canadians on the card uh, suffered defeats. This was a other side of the coin performance when it comes to the contrast with UFC 289 last June, a pretty magical night in Vancouver. Uh, this was a case of sort of a, a I'm not even going to call it a step back. It was a sense of, um, you know, several this was a bit of a litmus test when it came to a lot of the narrative going in was it it's an easy story to go with the state of Canadian MMA that uh, of course one card becomes that uh, deciding factor, but it's really not when you're going into things naturally, you're going to ask those questions about uh, comparisons to the prior era. There is this monumental shadow that so many of these uh, fighters in this country compete under that being of a George St. Pierre. That was a, transformational figure in mixed martial arts much less just canadian mma as well but uh, we'll talk about all of that we're going to get into uh the press conference afterwards i will uh i i will i will discuss that uh, as well and we are also going to get into some of the news and notes so 
this was an event that I got to cover live on on Saturday, and it had been uh, quite some time since I had covered a UFC live in person uh, for for a number of reasons. But was back on Saturday, and where I was stationed was in in the back, and was there to speak to a number of the fighters after their contest. We got to speak with pretty much all of the winners uh, after their fights, and. It was a very late night. Uh, these these East Coast shows are uh, something else. Uh, I know that there are people in other time zones that are probably uh, not exactly shedding tears, but it was, I want to say, uh, it was 3.30 in the morning when I got out of that arena. Um, and it, long gone were any any crowds of, of any sort at, the, at that time and hour in Toronto. But yes, a very late night, but we... Got to hear from all of the all of the key people, uh, including uh, Drickus Duplessis and Raquel Pennington. We'll have some of that audio as well as other people that I got to speak with uh, at the press conference with other members of the media who were uh, stationed there in the back. So we're going to start off with the main event and the headline. It is Drickus Duplessis, the new middleweight champion, Sean Strickland, making the first defense of his 185-pound championship. They went the distance, and it was 48-47 cards on both sides before... The ruling was made. Drickus Duplessis winning by split decision. And th- this was a fight that going in, I mean, you had the questions of here is someone in Drickus Duplessis, a champion in KSW, a, a champion in South Africa, and never had he gone to the fourth and fifth rounds. And the conventional wisdom was that's going to be the X factor here because we have not seen Duplessis go to the fourth and fifth rounds. And that's not a mark against him. That's only an unknown. And that's what we are assessing here. Sean Strickland is somebody that has been um, his, his, his cardio and his conditioning for those late rounds have been hallmarks for him. This is someone that, I mean, in, in this fight, we'll, we'll go through some of the stats here, but here is a guy that does exceptionally well at distance. He is also someone that uh, maybe more of a, of an underrated aspect to his game is the level of damage that this guy takes to his legs throughout these fights. I mean, in this in this fight, he absorbed uh, 24 leg kicks uh, th- throughout the fight. And really, you could not see a, a diminished uh, Sean Strickland when it came to that. Uh, we-, we go back and against Israel Adesanya, he absorbed 34 leg kicks. I mean, this is somebody that can just kind of walk through that damage. And he is as much as the personality of Sean Strickland is so focused upon and you see him throughout fight week and screaming like to the death when he is in there he is locked he is dialed and this was someone like his jab was sensational on this night and Drickus Duplessis was wearing the effects of that jab uh, throughout the fight both of these individuals I mean they were trying to create as as awkward a style for the other to figure out and both had to had to go through significant damage very early in the fight uh Drickus Duplessis had his uh left eye shut and said it was the first time in his uh, career that he couldn't see out of one eye and it was in between rounds he was able to get the swelling down but that was one handicap he had to fight through Sean Strickland later uh did post a statement just about the fact of a, of a headbutt that he had to weather Drickus Duplessis, at least at the press conference, did not recall any such collision of heads uh, during the fight. But I mean, that sometimes is many things can occur in a fight that maybe you are not aware of at the time. But that remains to be seen. I'm sure both men will be uh, looking back at these 25 minutes. Um, You know, this was following a championship fight in the bantamweight title fight that was 
not exactly having the, this audience uh, at the edge of their seats. It was, you know, you can certainly separate the story of Raquel Pennington winning a championship after all these years with what the actual fight was in a vacuum. It was not a tremendous fight. Um, for the main event, this is not going to be the, the fight of the year, but I thought it was a really compelling battle. And you had, um, it was a very close fight that going to the judges' scorecards, this was one where I thought, whatever the outcome is, there are going to be people upset. It was that close. And I didn't monitor like too much outrage over the, the contest. But um, so th- this will be a little bit different because as we are just to convey my setup in the back, we are in the media section. So sometimes during the fights, they would be bringing back winners. And thus we were in the midst of, you know, you'd have one eye on the interview subject and you're trying to get your questions in and trying to have your other eye on the monitor to be following the fight. So w- for some fights, we're not going to have the, the most detailed breakdowns more. So we'll, we'll focus sort of on, on the story coming out of this. But, you know, I I think most I would I would really say a a, a decent majority uh, saw this as a three two fight for Drickus Duplessis. I scored it 48-47 for Duplessis, thinking that Strickland won rounds one and rounds five. It seemed that round three was the, the real um, swing round that, I mean, qu- quite honestly, you, you could make your, your cases um, for, for several of, the, of these rounds. I mean, some were more definitive than others, but this was overall, you know, a very uh, close fight. But I, I did feel that the judges got this right. And let's uh, focus on those first. Derek Cleary. Uh, had it 48-47 for Duplessis, as did Eric Cologne. They both uh, had identical scorecards as well. Each of them, same as me. They gave Strickland one and five and the middle rounds to Duplessis. Sal Diamata was the one dissenting judge that did have it for Strickland, giving him rounds one, three, and five. So the judges, the one round they did not agree on was round three. That seemed to be the closest. Media scores, I mean, it's almost right down the middle that you had nearly half and half, maybe a slight few in favor of Duplessis. In a in a nutshell, I think we have a middleweight title picture that the immediate question is Israel Adesanya and how long he is going to be out. There were some whispers that he might have been in Toronto to be seated cage side to watch this fight. Did not appear in Toronto on Saturday night. That would be maybe your your front runner to be fighting Drickus Duplessis. But the question is, Israel Adesanya. I mean, his comments had been, I mean, he's sort of talked about taking a, a, a while away before coming back. But certainly he would seem to be the front runner to fight Drickus Duplessis next. In the absence of that, there is Hamza Chemaev, whose name is being thrown out. Drickus Duplessis certainly does not seem sold on the idea of fighting Hamza Chemaev, given that he has had one fight. Um, against against really a converted welterweight in Kamaru Usman in in terms of a a high ranking opponent at 185 pounds, but I think that we have a a a group of middleweights that could very well be seeing each other several occasions. I do not think this is the last Drickus Duplessis Sean Strickland fight we are going to see. Sean Strickland will probably fight for this championship again in as short as one more fight to get him back here. And given the schedules, I mean, Hamza Chemaev, you cannot bank on when he will be able to come back. Uh, Same with Israel Adesanya. If they are in a situation where we need a card to fill, we need a championship fight and we need a contender. I think that they will be naturally leaning on someone like Sean Strickland. And believe me, 
this week, uh, you know, for whatever you want to say about Sean Strickland and whatever your uh, personal agreements or disagreements with him are in terms of what he says, he was the most popular fighter on this card. And here was a show that on paper, I mean, fine card, but to do the level of business that this card did, yes, it has been since 2018 that the UFC has been here, but to do a $7.9 million gate, that's a big feather in the cap of a Sean Strickland that this card was in essence built around. Like he was the number one star on this show. And that is going to be a lot of currency for Sean Strickland when it comes to his positioning and his star power in the UFC, regardless of a championship. And then, you know, once we get out of that, th- those four fighters at middleweight, including Dricus Duplessis, um, you know, Robert Whitaker is going to be fighting Paulo Costa next month. But at that point, we're, we're getting a little further down. Jerry Cannonier, can he make a run and get another championship fight? All these are in play. But I look at those four in Duplessis, Strickland, Adesanya, and I throw in Hamza Chimaev there. I think those four kind of is what our title picture is going to look like for the next 12 to 18 months. But let's quickly just circle back to the fight. As I said, I saw Strickland winning the first round. I thought that he, you know, immediately was attacking with with the jab, cracked him with a right hand at the end. In the second, it was Strickland continuing with the jab. He had a lot of success with that. Uh, But Duplessis was getting several strikes in and was sort of going for takedowns. And he explained to us afterwards, it was sort of, um, especially in the first round, wanting to get that takedown as sort of a, kind of a finality to the round to put something in the heads of the judges. Now, a simple takedown should not be swaying if if the damage has been done. And that, that did not win Duplessis the first round. But in the second, he continued with the takedowns. And, and that was something that was there for him. And Strickland gets cut by the right eye. This is when Duplessis already has his left eye swollen. So both were dealing with those issues with, with their eyes and and that ability to handicap them into the third it's uh Duplessis throwing a lot of left hands putting a good amount of pressure on him again this was the swing round that you could argue either way and depending on who you scored this round for that's probably who you had winning the, the, the fight this would have been the most uh contentious of the five rounds another aspect to Duplessis and we'll hear from him in a minute discussing this was his success with the kicks he was uh, found those openings. They were, he, he was exerting a lot of energy, but this was not a guy in Duplessis who was um, uh, emptying his gas tank. I mean, he put a lot of energy. He put a lot into his output, but was someone that he was, he was good for the 25 minutes. I mean, that, that question was answered on this night in terms of Duplessis and what does he look like if, if a round four and a round five uh, presents itself to, to him. But going back, uh, we go to the fourth round and Strickland is continuing to land with his right, was having some good success before a trip takedown. And then it was Duplessis getting on the gas here and landing with a combination. There was a head kick and then a takedown. It seemed like that was sort of his exclamation point at the end of several rounds was getting in that that final takedown. And then in the fifth round, I, I thought this was the best round of the five. And it was a Strickland round. He was entering, he was connecting, and both of them. It was interesting to hear the audience that was so pro-Strickland. And by the fifth round, uh, flipping, and you were getting the DDP chant at the Scotiabank Arena. But Strickland was still utilizing that jab, but uh, body kicks from Duplessis. And both men just kind of going for it. 
in these final 60 seconds before the judges read the scorecards. Strickland, exceptionally gracious in defeat. This was not, um, you know, did not treat this like it was a robbery or complaining. He was very respectful towards Drickus Duplessis. And uh, both men, I think, came out of this week. When you, when you contrast to how this began, and the fact that we had the the kind of stuff that was brought up about Sean Strickland's childhood, and then we had the fight at 296 last month, to where by fight week, you would have think this was at a boiling point, and instead, the two really like cooled things down between themselves uh, privately, and then w- were sharing kind of what their exchange had been offline, and the fact that by the time we got to fight week, here were two fighters that I think understood like they... They had a great amount of respect for one another, and you saw that uh, in in the embedded series, and you saw it uh, even after the fact here with uh, Duplessis and and how he really uh, complimented Sean Strickland. But uh, when we look at at, at Strickland, I mean, he, here was the uh, some of the stats courtesy of UFC stats uh, total strikes. It was Sean Strickland landing 183 compared to 140 for Duplessis. Um, the output. Uh, ahead for Sean Strickland when it came to what he threw through 419 strikes in total landing 183 of them no takedown attempts by Sean Strickland compared to six that Duplessis uh, completed out of 11 attempts so that was that was a big factor for Duplessis that he found the wrestling and initiated that continued it throughout the fight as well and when it come it came to the leg damage as we mentioned 24 leg kicks to six for Sean Strickland and uh you know, Duplessis, this was a big performance for him in terms of what this was on his shoulders going in. They had a tremendous reaction of the crowd that had gathered in South Africa watching this at about 7.30 in the morning local time and just a huge celebratory uh, reaction when the decision was read that they showed on the screen for Duplessis to see as well. So Drickus Duplessis is your new middleweight champion. And at this time, we're going to go to the post-fight press conference. And this was a couple of questions that I got in chatting with Duplessis about the game plan going into the fourth and fifth rounds and what this fight meant to him. On the, the facial injuries, are there any other injuries you're dealing with? Um, yeah, I mean, the body feels pretty banged up right now, but I can't say for sure how severe these injuries are. You were having a lot of success with the, the kicks throughout the fight. Was that something that you saw going into this that would be a key part of your strategy, or was that something that just became available throughout the fight and you saw the success and kept with it? Yeah, no, no. This is something we worked, uh, we, um, we saw in all of his fights. He's really good at evading these kicks. Um, we saw with Israel Desanya, he wasn't very successful with these kicks because of Sean's defense. I caught a few good head kicks in. I got a few good low kicks in. Um, it was just the timing that we um, we had figured out a little bit better than than um, Izzy did in that fight. Um, but yeah, anytime you're going to fight a guy with a strong and good jab, um, I thought, you know, my coaches, um, Coach Manofa, so he, he's obviously a genius when it comes to these things. We looked at the fight and said, that's how we're going to take care of a jab. And those kicks did start to hurt him by round number three. 100%. And his jab became a lot lighter in that third round, definitely. 
You also answered a lot of questions going into the, the fourth and fifth rounds for the first time in your career. Can you just tell us, especially that going into the fifth round, sort of what your corner is telling you and mentally, are you just on autopilot at that point? Like, Take us through your emotions, just prepare for those final five minutes. No, not at all. I mean, I went into the fifth round and I said to my coach, wow, can you believe it? I guess I have a gas tank. And um, he said, this is the last 15 minutes of your life. And I said, damn straight. And, um, you know, we basically, I was, I was happy to be there in that fifth round. It wasn't autopilot at all. It was, damn, I feel great for a fifth round. When we went to the fourth round, I felt, damn, I'm going to prove a lot of people wrong tonight. That was your new UFC middleweight champion, Drickus Duplessis, winning by split decision against Sean Strickland. And, you know, he was throwing out the idea that, you know, if, if the right offer comes his way, like he would be around to turn around as quickly as UFC 300. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit about uh, that as well coming up. So there you have it. That was our, our main event of the show. And now we will move on to the co-feature, which was for the vacant bantamweight championship amanda nunez in attendance for this card as well in toronto it was raquel pennington taking on myra bueno silva and going in i mean this was a this was a fight that was very much maligned from the time that it was announced it is a tough position when you are coming off the era of the dominant champion of the last era and she has not lost the title she had the hiccup with juliana pena but avenged that and now it is moving on with with that um kind of on on your shoulders not all unlike when george st pierre stepped away in 2013 um little different circumstances there when you had such a close fight with johnny hendrix and many people thinking hendrix beat george st pierre and then hendrix when he became the official welterweight champion the next year he was accepted a lot more in terms of that because of the performance against George. Uh, we have seen Amanda Nunez against Raquel Pennington, and this was her first championship fight since that time back in uh, 2018. So um, this fight, I, th- I think just in the most basic of terms, I thought that Myra Bueno Silva was in over her head in this fight. It was easily the the biggest fight of her career. You know, the Holly Holm performance was a really spectacular one and submitting a former champion in Holm. But um, I think some of that got clouded with the with the drug test afterward that she explained was for her ADHD medication that she tested positive for this Ritalinic acid. Um, not not to say that, like, you, you downplayed the performance from that, but I don't think she fully got the effect of that win that going into this fight. I mean... At, at, at essence, I mean, this is not as though she was just so overmatched on paper going into this fight. But I, th- I think people realize like this is going to be quite the transitional period for the women's 135 pound weight class. And and that will continue after after this fight. Um, they went the full 25 minutes and Silva, I did think, won the first round. She was can, uh, after eating a pair of elbows, she started landing knees from the tie clinch and got the takedown by the fence and got Pennington's back. And as Pennington stands, Silva is still on the back and drags Pennington down and secured the back and landed punches from behind. And you thought, like, this is this is a path to victory in terms of if she is able to secure back control on a semi-consistent basis in this fight, those submission opportunities are going to present themselves for Silva. But Pennington had 
the better wrestling. She was able to get on top and leave Silva on her back where she absorbed uh, a lot of strikes. Uh, this was the reversal in round two. In the third, it was Pennington working on top in half guard, connecting with hammer fists. Into the fourth, the crowd is getting very restless by this point. Silva did try for a rear naked choke, but Pennington got out of danger and some big hammer fists on top. Ends the round on top with with an elbow. So it was it was the top game pressure from Pennington that was banking these rounds. And wash, rinse, repeat in the fifth round. Pennington uh, mounted Silva in the fifth, threatened with an arm triangle, and then resorted to ground and pound. And Silva did stay on the back as Pennington uh, kicked away. Um, this was Silva just, I think, at the end of this fight. Like, here you are. You're well down on the scorecards. And she just stayed on her back. And Pennington just, uh, just, uh, kicked away at her legs. It was a very uneventful end to what was an uneventful fight, but one that does come with the significance of Raquel Pennington after all of these years being in the UFC for over a decade and becoming the women's bantamweight champion. Scores were 49-46, 49-46, and 49-45. Your winner, Raquel Rocky Pennington. The clear direction is Juliana Pena. That would be the most logical contender to be fighting Raquel Pennington next. I think that is all but assumed at, at this point coming out of this fight. And again, I think you do have to separate. There's going to be a lot of criticism for this fight. But at the same time, I think a lot of people that look at Raquel Pennington, I mean, this is somebody that, um, you know, they brought this up on the broadcast, like breaking her back at the age of 19. And then in 2017, a devastating, devastating knee injury that would have retired some fighters. What she has come back from is incredible. And there are not too many fighters that you look at um, that are, you know, 10 plus years into their UFC tenure that are fighting for a UFC championship. Now that does come with the caveat. This bantamweight division is in flux and there is a there's not a dearth of contenders. You do have the obvious one at this point in uh, Juliana Pena, but I think this is, you're talking about a division that is standing on the shoulders of giants in Ronda Rousey in the, uh, like I would, you know, couple that era with Misha Tate and Holly Holm and then Amanda Nunez as well, who from 2016 onward has been the dominant force, save for the one loss to Juliana Pena. Um, but here we are going to uh, check in with Raquel Pennington. Um, I actually thought this was like the most um, insightful answer that I, I personally got uh, on the night from Raquel Pennington. If you fa- if you rewind back to media day on Wednesday, I mean, she was speaking about the fact that she was just in such a positive space. And I asked her on Wednesday about the first championship fight she had with Amanda Nunez and whether that was considered sort of the be all end all for her was this championship. It is feast or famine win or lose against Amanda Nunez. And this was the opposite. This was another fight to her. And this was, um, this was not the be all end all. And so I wanted to kind of expand on that. We heard her answer beforehand and now after the fact of just what this fight meant to her. So here is your new bantamweight champion. At media day on Wednesday, you were stating how great your mindset was throughout this camp going into this fight and trying to just treat it like any other fight. Was that the case as the days got closer, the hours got closer, or were you just having a great poker face this week uh, going into it? Um, No, I mean, it's been a great week, and my mindset has been really good. Um, Today was actually a very interesting day for me. Like, 
I mean, people want to learn the story behind things. And so this is one of them. Like I woke up this morning and to be in this position, like this is something people dream of. This is what I've dreamed of again for the last five years, but this is something I've worked hard for. And, you know, I remember back in the day I said I wanted to be one of the first women into the UFC and people laughed at me and I was like, and then I'm going to be a champion and people laughed at me again and to get here. And I woke up this morning and like literally questioned everything. I woke I mean, if you can't hear it in my voice, like I woke up so sick and I had to spend a lot of the morning talking with my coaches, uh, my sports psychologist, Tisha. Like I had to dig deep and pull out and like really find the champion mindset because as a person, like I did break this morning, but I mean, it wasn't a poker face all week. Like I've been solid in my thoughts and everything that I was going to go out there and do. And then it took one, you know, I sat here and did a session with my sports psychologist and slowly started gathering myself. And then they brought my little girl around and I seen how beautiful she looked. And I was like, all right, like I'm not quitting. I'm going out there and I'm doing this. It doesn't matter how I feel. So that was Raquel Pennington. I just thought that was such an insightful answer that you get into the head of a fighter going into what, I mean, however she wants to define it, whether it's just another fight for her or it's everything wrapped into 25 minutes. The fact is that it, it it's a huge, uh, it's a huge moment in your career and the mental side of it is so like there, there's a reason why we we fixate sometimes, maybe too much sometimes, on on the mental side of fighting because that that is such a huge element to it. And even somebody that is coming in with the with that proper mindset and the experience of fighting for a championship, that here the day of this is what a fighter is going through. And I just thought that was a very revealing answer in terms of just getting to the cage for herself on on Saturday and is now a bantamweight champion. So let's move on. Uh, next fight up was, uh, so this was the end of the run of uh, Canadian fighters. Mike Malott was leading the charge into UFC 297 and looked to be um, on his way to getting his arm raised at the Scotiabank Arena. But Neil Magny, uh, the veteran of now 30 UFC fights going back to 2013, uh, huge come from behind victory in the third round uh, Mike Malott was uh, attacking with inside leg kicks early on in the second got a takedown work to half guard mounted Magny and it seemed that he was just moments away from a decision victory got another takedown into the third and is working inside of Magny's guard tried for a guillotine and gets thrown down to the mat and it's Magny with the ground and pound and then he moves to mount and finishes Malott with 15 seconds to go in the round I mean if this goes 15 seconds more it's a 29-28 win for Mike Malott, and uh, Neil Magny gets the victory. Uh, th- there was quite a great uh, story that Neil Magny shared afterwards is that he had a 6 a.m. flight out of Toronto to get home for his son's fourth birthday because a year ago he missed his son's birthday because he was in Brazil. That was the fight against Gilbert Burns, and he missed his son's birthday. So he was probably going to be going on no sleep and at least does have the the W on his on his way home for Mike Malott. I mean, this is his first loss in a decade and one that I think this will certainly show you like this kind of adversity and how he comes back from it. He is, I think, still a very highly touted prospect at 170 pounds, and he is now three and one in the UFC. But it has been a long time since he sustained a loss. We're talking over nine years since uh, the last loss. And that was way back against uh, Hakeem Dawadu. Uh, this will be a, a challenging recovery for a Mike Malott in terms of like how he handles it on the mental side of being 
in Toronto and and being so close to, to victory. But sometimes uh, that one step back can be the what propels you into the evolution of your career. Like Mike Mallott is still, he is 32 years old, certainly not at an age where you can discount him making a run at welterweight. But it was a big win for Neil Magny, who remains sort of like just this Iron Man at 170 pounds and with the number of fights that he has had. And I mean, afterwards, very characteristic, just stating he wants to stay busy in 2024. And I think everyone looking at his history believes that he will. When you look at the quality of fighter, that it takes to beat a Neil Magny. Like, yes, you look at his UFC record. He is now 22 and eight in the UFC, which the first thing that jumps out at you is the number of UFC fights. That alone is impressive. And then when you look at eight losses, it's like, okay, that's that's a fair number of losses. Listen to these names that get to uh, uh, claim a victory over Neil Magny in the UFC. Damian Maya, Lorenz Larkin, Rafael Dos Anjos, Santiago Ponzinibbio, Michael Chiesa, Shavkat Rachmanov, Gilbert Burns, and then Ian Machado Gary. I mean, like, that tells you why there is, uh, like, Ian Gary, that was a quality win for him against Neil Magny when you're talking about being in fairly elite class at 170 pounds that are able to hold a victory against Neil Magny. Uh, moving on down the card, and uh, next we'll go to uh, Chris Curtis taking on Mark Andre Barrio, and this one uh, also going the distance. And this was this was a pretty rabid crowd. Chris Curtis came out to uh, Edge's theme music, Adam Copeland uh, by Alter Bridge. Not going to uh, uh, the worst name of a song, maybe in recording artist history, uh, but Chris Curtis getting the win by split decision, thirty twenty seven twice, and one. Judge 2928 for Mark Andre Barrio. Uh, th- this was one where we were just like just super deep in uh, in interview. So I really only got to see uh, much of the first round. So uh, apologies for the uh, the lack of analysis on this fight. But uh, Curtis now improves to uh, five and two with a, a no contest throughout his UFC tenure. He had been coming off a no contest against uh, Nasruddin Imavov back in June at 289 on that card in Vancouver. He's had many fights in uh, Canada and also a training partner with Sean Strickland. So he, he was, uh, excellent at the post fight press conference. If you want to go, uh, seek that out and just like, um, you know, speaking about Sean Strickland and his own uh, reaction to the fans here in, in Canada as well. And sort of, you know, the, the, the crowd uh, got on these two, um, for, I guess their perceived lack of action that there, there was in this fight. And, you know, Chris Curtis was after like joking, like, Hey, I'm sorry. We didn't kill each other. Um, but Curtis gets gets the W here and, um, you know, a, a good win at middleweight. Mark Andre Barrio is someone that, you know, has largely been a, a 500 fighter in the UFC and had won his last two. So running into a speed bump here in Chris Curtis. The pay-per-view main card opened up with a, I would say, pretty important fight at featherweight with the undefeated Movstar Evloev uh, defeating Arnold Allen by unanimous decision. And the big question of this was going to be the wrestling. Like, uh, Evloev has outstanding wrestling and believes he has the best wrestling at 145 pounds. Arnold Allen is uh, like his takedown defense is exceptional. And that was going to be sort of where the rubber meets the road in this match and, and who was going to be able to, to dictate things. And it was Evloev getting the unanimous decision scores of a uh, 29, 28 across the board. And uh, let's take a look at the, uh, the, the judges decisions here of uh, I think they were all in agreement on this one in terms of the, uh, the round distribution for uh Evloev and Allen. And we had 
Judge Eric Cologne scoring uh, the first two rounds for Evloev. Yeah, as did uh, Patricia Vandermeer and Salim Hanif. They both had the first two rounds for Evloev and the third to Arnold Allen, which kind of was as expected. Allen, thre- Allen threatened with a uh, a ninja choke in the third round, and Evloev uh, rolled away, got to his back. It was actually like a really tremendous escape by Evloev and transition to the back. I mean, Evloev. If you want to see kind of his his wrestling and how it is uh, prepared for it, like mixed martial arts wrestling, like the Granby roles that he had and transitions in the first round were a thing of beauty. The biggest controversy in this came in the third round when Allen charged at Evloev with a series of knees while Evloev was putting his hand down towards the mat. And you had the confusion that I think is always going to exist when you have all these different rules from state to state, it's sort of, and believe me, it's it's not like an excuse not to know the rules, but you get that confusion on the broadcast of like, where where are we right now? Is it is it palms down? Is it just one hand touches? Um, in this case, like neither knee was down, so you 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 were like you know quote unquote playing the game here with with with, with the hand down, and you had all this um, confusion about hey, are these knees uh, legal or not? And Mark Goddard stepped in and explained to. Arnold Allen that he knows that they were not intentional. You're getting a hard warning, but essentially that these were uh, several illegal knees. And this busted open Evloev at the side of the head. Like these, these were the most significant damage in, in the whole round was, uh, or the whole fight, I should say, for Arnold Allen and would have made a big difference in the fight. And uh, Mark Ramondi over at ESPN uh, afterwards uh, did get clarification on this. Regarding the knees, stating that apparently in Ontario, the original rule is used for grounded fighters. Prior to the several changes that have been made in other jurisdictions over the years, weight bearing does not matter. If any part of the body other than the soles of the feet are on the mat, a blow to the head from a kick or knee is illegal. One of those knees were illegal under that version. Referee Mark Goddard halted the action but didn't take a point, did the best job he could considering. And um, there you go. So um, that was the... That was, I would say, the biggest controversy when it came to uh, the rules of the fight and uh, and stating that at least one of these knees um, connected while the, while the hand was down for Evloev. But the fight did continue, Evloev getting the unanimous decision. And this will propel him. I mean, he is now in the mix at featherweight at 18-0. You know, he is someone I, I don't think he's fighting next for the title. You have Volkanovsky and Ilya Teporia next month. And maybe Evloev has um, a, a, another fight in his path. But... At the very least, I do envision that he is going to, like, at worst, I think he's probably headlining a fight night next. I, I think we're we're due for a five-round Movsar Evloev fight at 145 pounds, and that will become uh, very interesting, especially if you're taking a Max Holloway out of the mix. Like, when he goes up to take this fight with Justin Gaethje uh, coming up in April, um, is is this just a a one off for Holloway like we saw against Dustin Poirier at 155 pounds and he reverts back to 145 or if Holloway's out of the featherweight division I mean it's it is a clear path for several contenders because that's that was one of the interesting factors of you know Holloway taking this fight with Gaethje is that you know if uh, Poirier wins this title next month like Max Holloway is right there um, so anyway Mozart Evloev. Um, Dana White was not as complimentary about this fight, but it was, um, you know, still a, to me, it was like one of the more intriguing fights on this entire card. Uh, for some, it was the most intriguing just because of, uh, you know, a real quality opponent in Arnold Allen and what this meant for Evil Web past this test. 
let's quickly go through the the undercard here. So uh, again, not not a, not a great night for Canadian content. Uh, Garrett Armfield defeated Brad Katona by unanimous decision. Uh, I gave uh, Armfield the uh, the second and third. Katona winning uh, the first on my scorecard. Um, you know, Garrett Armfield. I mean, he just he has a he has a great gas tank, and he was able to deal with uh, Brad Katona, who was very aggressive with it with his takedown attempts. And Armfield just kind of met him in the pocket, um, landing with a lot of right hands, uh, particularly in the second round. And uh, it was Katona getting the takedown late in the second, but Armfield right back up, and uh, Katona just working for more takedowns in in the third before we went to uh, the judges' scorecards. Charles Air Jordan and Sean Woodson. This one also going the distance, and this had the most uh, unique reading of scorecards and reactions afterwards. So we had a split decision win for Sean Woodson, and uh, first of all, I I had it twenty nine twenty eight for Sean Woodson winning uh, the first and second round. Uh, Woodson just has an outs. This guy is a featherweight with a reach of seventy eight inches he had a nine inch reach over charles jordan and that's uh is just an incredible uh wingspan here and woodson is a he's a very awkward striker to to decipher and to work around and i think you could sense that uh w- with jordan jordan did threaten with a guillotine in the third but woodson popped out his head and uh we went to the scorecards and they the card was read accurately but Charles Jordan, after it's announced as Sean Woodson winning, Jordan is the one that celebrates. And momentarily, Woodson is watching Jordan and just accepting that he lost. And then later, it was just so loud, they could not hear. And then you just had like almost this like pause. And then you got to just watch two men that were suddenly winner, loser, and then flip spots. And all of a sudden, it's Woodson realizing, oh, no, you won. And Jordan, oh, no, you lost. It was bizarre that you would, you would have to uh, watch here. Uh, Woodson explained to us after, like, he had a really rough training camp here, nearly had to pull out and s- stated that of, of the actual time he had to prepare for this, he had, like, three weeks in total of real training for this camp. But... um no, he's a great personality, and uh, he came into this an underdog. I mean, Jordan was a minus two hundred five favorite um, go- going into this fight. So uh, for for Sean Woodson, like a very nice record on paper. He's now eleven one and one at featherweight and unbeaten in his last five contests. Serhi Sidi and Ramon Tavares. This was supposed to be a bantamweight fight, but Tavares came in at 139.75 pounds. So just about four pounds over the limit of 136. This was a rematch from last September when they met on, met on the Contender Series, and Sidi won that fight by TKO, uh, but there was a lot of uh, contesting of that fight, of it being an early stoppage. So they booked the rematch, and they had a war uh, for, for three rounds. Like, certainly... Uh, fight of the night went to the main event between Strickland and Duplessis. This, I mean, you had Tavares missing weight, and therefore you're typically not uh, included in any any bonuses. But th- th- this could have been your your fight of the night, and I think for for many it was. Um, I thought Tavares won the first round with uh, his body shots that did seem to affect Tavares. In the second, uh, Sidi he got his nose busted open, and he was uh, leaking. It was a faucet coming out of his nose that he had to contend with. Tavares is stopping uh, multiple takedowns, and then Sidi continues to go to the body, landed a head kick, and then followed with just tons of pressure here. So I had it even going into the third. 
Tavares did land a kick to the body in the third, and Sadia is going at him in the pocket. Lands a flying knee and a head kick in the final minute. So I had it 29-28 for Serhi Sidi. The judges, two of them, went the other way. 29-28 for Ramon Tavares, one scorecard for Serhi Sidi. What was interesting about this one is that if you go to MMA decisions, the media scores, at least as of last night, Every single media member had this 29-28 for Serhi Sidi. And I'm looking at it, yes, a unanimous 29-28 account of this fight by the media members. So there you go. Um, Possible that uh, we could get a third round between these two uh, in in the sense of uh, the Contender Series follow-up and and, and this one. But we'll see. These two probably are, are tired of preparing for one another after back-to-back fights. But um, nonetheless, I, I thought it was a very good performance from Sir Hesidi. As it was Ramon Tavares, he explained that he needs to get a nutritionist and pretty much just uh, a wake-up call on his weight cut to not let it get to this point again. I mean, not only is it um, difficult for the fighter to have to deal with, with such a weight discrepancy, but it's, it's costing you as well, part of your purse. Jillian Robertson got a TKO victory against Pollyanna Vienna. She looked excellent in this fight. Um, big round in the first, getting the takedown, threatened with an arm triangle, and then moved to the arm bar. But Vienna withstood in the second. Robertson got the back, mounted her, and just started dropping shots, elbows, and got the stoppage at 312 of the second round. So Jillian Robertson, uh, that was her 16th fight in the UFC. The most submissions of any female in UFC history. Didn't get the sub in this one, but uh, had been coming off a decision loss to Tabitha Ricci back in June. And uh, once upon a time, did fight Myra Bueno Silva. That was all the way back in 2018, where she was submitted by Bueno Silva. And uh, on to the... uh, other fights here. We will just quickly go through them. Sam Patterson submitted Johan Lainess by rear naked choke at two minutes, three seconds of the first round. And uh, for Patterson, just seems like this is the weight class that he wants to be in uh, m- moving forward. This guy, I mean, how he was making lightweight so consistently was uh, was was stunning. I mean, he he's a big guy. Um, so I, th- I think this new weight class is going to fit him much better. Just got the back, threatened with the rear naked choke and got the tap. Like it was, it was pretty... Um, pretty surgical uh, precision here from Sam Patterson in terms of his game plan and executing it. Jasmine Jazdavicius defeated Priscilla Cachoeira by Anaconda Choke, 421 of the third round. This was a massacre. Um, Jazdavicius just destroyed her. The official count was 326 total strikes landed for Jazdavicius to 26 for Cachoeira. Uh, One of the judges, Sal Diamato, gave the second round a 10-7. Not too often you see a 10-7 because when you're talking about a 10-7, odds are the fight should have been stopped if we're talking about a realistic uh, 10-7. But they didn't need the judges' scorecards because in the third, um, Cachoeira actually landed a pair of strikes on the feet, but then Jazdavicius got her down to side control and Cachoeira is just a mess here. She is bleeding all over the place and Jazdavicius worked from north-south, got the mounted choke and uh, and submitted her with the Anaconda. 421 of the third round and what happened was on Friday, uh, on Thursday, actually, it was Jez DeVicius that got contacted that she was going to be, that Cachoeira was having trouble making weight, and they ended up contracting this at bantamweight instead of flyweight. However, uh, Cachoeira was still docked 30% of her purse, so it wasn't a case of just moving it to another weight class and all was fine. Like There, there was a, uh, a deduction for Cachoeira. And the card way, way back in the early hours of Saturday evening, Jimmy Flick 
getting an arm triangle submission over Malcolm Gordon. Uh, this was tough for Malcolm Gordon because, man, he came out aggressive and he was looking really good. Got a takedown in the first and was working in Flitz guard, landing a lot of ground and pound. Then Flit tried for a triangle and Gordon broke out, landing more elbows. And while he's in the guard, Gordon goes for a guillotine and Flick gets on top and turns it into a Von Flew slash Von Flick choke. But Gordon withstands and Flick thought if he had 15 more seconds, he would have got the submission here. He said he heard Gordon gurgling, but got saved by the horn. In the second, Gordon is teeing off with punches, like a lot of aggression here, landed a knee. And then Flick just gets his back, takes Gordon down, and he moves to the arm triangle and submits Gordon at a minute 17 of round number two. And uh, here is uh, Jimmy Flick uh, reflecting on this. And uh, th- this another fight where there was a, uh, a weight miss on, on the side of Malcolm Gordon. Back to the, the weight cut. You mentioned the pressure you already had on your shoulders coming into this fight. Was the weight miss, did it take you some time to kind of just, here's another obstacle in my way, or was it something that it, it didn't play with your head as much? No, nah, it just told me that I knew that he had some quit in him, and all I had to do was find that quit out there. I have no quit in me. If I had some quit in me, I wouldn't have made way. Thursday night, <clears throat> Thursday morning, actually, when I woke up, I was six, seven pounds from making weight i cut twice thursday i drank very little water i didn't eat food for 30 hours to make weight i went to bed thursday night at 127.4 and i woke up friday morning at 126 i would have liked that drink of water i would have liked that you know piece of bread i would have liked something but the win was way better does this feel like a unique win in the sense of all the things that you had against yourself and i mean just the reaction you had going out there and here you came through all these obstacles does this win kind of set itself apart just given it was such a different outcome if this doesn't go your way most definitely and round one was an obstacle as well uh started out real bumpy i went for a crappy takedown then i got taken down i got hit with a lot of big shots and he was finding his way with me in there in round one. But we have a three-round fight. This is 15 minutes. And until that bell sounds or until the ref pulls you off of me, the fight is not over, and I'm not going to quit. That was Jimmy Flick, who kicked off the night. Um, th- this, was a, this was a long card. I mean, uh, when Neil Magny uh, beat Mike Malott, we were 15 seconds away from eight consecutive decisions, including... Uh, back-to-back decisions in the two top championship fights. But that was UFC 297. And we'll get to uh, the, the, the Dana White comments in, in a second. Don't want to uh, jump over the fact that there was the announcement that Frankie Edgar is the first inductee into this year's Hall of Fame class. He will be going in uh, to the modern wing. And uh, here is uh, my quick chat with uh, Frankie Edgar after the announcement since retirement and obviously now coming off of this announcement you're going to be asked so many questions about your career in the next couple of months are you someone that enjoys reflecting and and looking at your big moments and speaking about yourself in in that way or are you a bit uncomfortable with yeah i mean i'm not a guy that likes to stroke myself too much you know i'm uh, i'm uh not (laughs) well you know Depends, <laughs> but you, you you know what I'm saying. I'm not really a guy that's uh, into patting myself on the back too much. But uh, it, it's nice to to talk about old memories. I mean, you know, I still liked what I did. I, I'm proud of of what I accomplished in the sport. So yeah, um, it's kind of two edged. And just the last one for me: how much the perception changed among people watching you after the first BJ fight? Did, was that a dramatic shift or was it the second BJ Penn fight that really in your mind solidified to people 
this is the the lightweight and this this was not a surprise the first time yeah yeah definitely the second fight you know the first fight uh I'm mean, gonna have to convince myself that I could beat BJ, you know. And then when when I did that, the second fight, I knew I knew I could. So then I kind of put was able to put the stamp on it. But that that, that solidified me, I think, and you know, really introduced me to the world at, at that moment. As Frankie Edgar, the first inductee into the 2024 Hall of Fame class, I don't think you're going to find anyone arguing Frankie Edgar's inclusion into the UFC Hall of Fame. I mean, this guy was just, I mean, it, it's a remarkable story of a guy that came in in the UFC in 2007. And this is someone like, look at this this path into the UFC. Like, yes, it is uh, six fights before he gets to the UFC, but his his last two stops before he, he gets uh, signed by the UFC are... Uh, Jim Miller for reality fighting. And prior to that, uh, Davidus Torosavicius, which might not be a name that is uh, rolls off the tongue or the memory bank of every fan, but a real fighter. Like this was somebody that w- would fight in the IFL, fought in WEC, and uh, even you know late, later into his career, uh, becoming a champion at, at Ring of Combat as well. I mean, it was, uh, you know, you're, you're fighting Jim Miller uh, outside of the UFC just to get in. And I mean, his first fight in the UFC is Tyson Griffin. And that's sort of the story of his career was always the undersized Frankie Edgar, who found remarkable success at a weight class he never should have been fighting at. But in 2007, it was lightweight or nothing. This was not the era of featherweight or bantamweight in the UFC, much less uh, flyweight. And, you know, throughout his career, he would challenge for titles at 135 and 145, but he became champion at 155. And, you know, it's interesting. You can look at different chapters of his career. You can separate them by the weight classes that he competed at, at being a top ranked fighter in all three of those weight classes. I think over time, the series of fights with, with Gray Maynard are the ones that are most closely associated with, with Frankie Edgar, in particular, just the the drama of UFC 125 and fighting to that draw and one, one of the ultimate comebacks after that first round by Frankie Edgar and then the rematch at 136 that year. They had a, a fight prior to that uh, back in 2008. So those three fights are ones that I think maybe are his most uh, famous fights that he has had, including the the second and third, in particular the second. But from a legacy building standpoint, I mean, it's time and place. But when you go back to 2010 and Frankie Edgar is going into 112 against BJ Penn, this is when BJ Penn is it at lightweight. This is arguably one of, if not the best fighters in the world. Um, Someone that had gone up to welterweight, had the loss to George St. Pierre in the rematch the prior year, but lost nothing in terms of his reputation and his standing at lightweight came back, uh, did a huge number. I remember at UFC one Oh one on, on that card, which also did feature Anderson Silva and Forrest Griffin, but I mean, had become a giant star um, just, and this was his weight class. So, I mean, you would be hard pressed to find too many that were picking Frankie Edgar to beat BJ Penn at UFC one twelve. Edgar won by unanimous decision. It was not without a lot of debate among people, so they ran it back. And then at UFC 118, it was a definitive win by Frankie Edgar, and that took him into the series of fights with uh, Gray Maynard. But, 
I mean, you can go through so many. Like I remember the the back to back fights with Benson Henderson, which were so so close. I mean, you can watch those, and I mean, you're talking about inches in terms of the difference of uh, scoring of those fights. And someone that just reinvented himself many many times throughout his career. You saw him, you know, just fight the who's who at all three of these weight classes uh, right up until fighting uh, Chris Gutierrez in uh, 2022. And uh, it was just a series of knockout losses that led to his retirement. And interestingly enough, like in that uh, press conference with the media, you know, it's like he did not want to retire and, you know, he's, he's not, he's not looking for fights. He's not, he's not seeking out um, a, a comeback, but man, he sounded like a guy that mentally has not, the door might be closed, but it has not been locked uh, mentally. It's, it, it is a tough transition sometimes for, for fighters. And you can tell, like, this is a guy very much wired in that, in that Chuck Liddell sort of way. Like, this is how the man, a, a big part of how he defines himself. But, uh, you know, a celebrated figure in mixed martial arts is uh, Frankie Edgar, one of the most popular fighters. And he will be part of the, the modern wink going into the Hall of Fame, uh, presumably, as always, International Fight Week, which, um, as we'll move over to Dana White, uh, when Conor McGregor did make the announcement of June 29th, and I'm going to be fighting Michael Chandler at middleweight, um, you know, D- Dana White was definitely um, kind of throwing the cold blanket on that one, that in terms of the um, uh, whether Conor will be fighting on, on that particular date. And it would seem that it would be, you know, obviously there's been no official announcement by the UFC, and it's been weeks since Conor McGregor just randomly threw out all of that, uh, th- those announcements a- as well. But uh, l- let's focus on this. So at the UFC press conference, um, I did bring up to Dana White about the um, th- the language of comments by Sean Strickland this past Wednesday at uh, Media Day, which we talked about on the show. And I felt it was uh, it was only fair that we had talked about it, that um, get Dana White's per- perspective on it. And certainly... Um, I, I am no, I am just getting uh, slammed for this, and that's totally fine. When you are attending these events and you're going to put your um, your your comments, your questions out there, it is completely fair game. That if uh, there's going to be blowback on you, you just have to accept that, and that's perfectly uh, fine. If uh, people felt it was a uh, out of place or w- whatever you want to call me, like believe me, it's. Uh, it's more than fair. But for those that maybe are not aware, um, let's hear. Uh, this is the, the exchange that I had with Dana White and sort of the idea of, is there a line when it comes to where fighters are going to go with, the, with their thoughts, with their language? And let's keep in mind the fact that one thing that to me was at least like a, a differential here is the fact that on Wednesday, like this was not a this was not promotion for a fight. Like we certainly see where things go to a darker side, and it's the caveat that this is the fight business, and they're going to get into a cage and they're going to fight. This was separate from that. This was not a this was not in relation to the comments from Drickus Duplessis at the press conference. This had nothing to do with Drickus Duplessis. This was Alexander Lee bringing up past homophobic and transphobic transphobic comments by Sean Strickland and asking him to share his thoughts of this and what are like to answer for these comments that a lot of people have taken issue with. And is that the kind of uh, language that you are okay with? So here is uh, my exchange with Dana White. Since retirement and obviously now coming off of this. That was Frankie Edgar. We're not going to hear from him again. You obviously give a long leash to your fighters about, you know, what they can say, 
when they are up there with a UFC microphone and you are getting into territory of homophobia, transphobia, like, is there... I don't give anybody a leash. Well, I'm saying you... A leash? I'm... St- like Free speech. Control when, what people say. Going to tell people what to believe. Going to tell people... I don't fucking tell any other human being what to say, what to think, and there's no leashes on any of them. What is your question? I was asking that question. I'll move on, though. Yeah, uh, probably a good idea. You sh- that's ridiculous to say I give somebody a leash. Free speech, brother. People can say whatever they want, and they can believe whatever they want. If And I don't think there's any... We had, we had, we had two gay women who fought in the co-main event. They sat on the stage with Sean Strickland. They could give a shit what Sean Strickland thinks or what he says or what his beliefs are or what his opinions are. You know what I mean? So there you have it. Uh, that was my uh, my, my brief uh, exchange there with, with Dane. And there was actually follow-up questions that I, I wanted to get to, and we will hear from those. But um, first of all, I... I on a silver platter gave him like the word leash that yes, I, I wish I used latitude. You know what I mean? But it's like, what what are we arguing here? Are we really getting into the semantics here of like a a very commonly used expression that listen, I, I gave people here, here is a loaded gun. Come at me. And that's what I got today. Fair game. So my intent there, and I, I, I wish I, you know, had the chance to better, uh, get my question out. But as you could see, like Dana, like I got my response. I, I got his insight and that that was everything was in his answer was that th- there's no line. There is no line that you cannot cross that. Obviously he is not going to uh, tell people what to say, but let's not have uh, just the most short-term memory. Let's just go as far as last month when he was asked about Colby Covington bringing up Leon Edwards' dead father. And that, yeah, he wasn't crazy about that. He doesn't like that type of thing. I mean, that was only a month ago. Everyone has a line. It's just, where is yours? This is not about policing people. This is not about, uh, we can make this all a free speech discussion. We can make it all these these grand attacks on, uh, on people's freedoms. It's really not. It is like at its core, what are you, the consumer, comfortable with? Believe me, if you want to go to my mentions, you can see that the the latitude, you like that word, is immense that you can say whatever you want. And are we comfortable of a setting, not someone on their Twitter account, not someone outside doing some separate interview on their own YouTube channel, no, at a UFC press event, going into subjects that are not connected to the fight that they are promoting in any sense, but to like, please go and read the comments from Sean Strickland. Better yet, listen to the comments from Sean Strickland and understand like at its core, is this good for your business? I would actually argue they have not felt any, any kind of detriment from this. But if you are going to uh, allow your fighters to go in this direction, I wish I had just stated, like, is there absolutely no line that is too far? Can we 
can if if we were talking about a racist tirade fair game or is that what we want at a ufc event i am not trying to just play gotcha or leading questions or any of that that is just low-hanging fruit to just come back and dismiss the conversation and turn it into something else let's not go all that far back to the pandemic when one person named dana white had stated that you are not going to get politics here when you tune into a UFC broadcast. No one wants to hear that stuff when they tune in to the UFC. So which is it? Is this free is is that a lack of free speech? Are there fans that are being turned off by certain things like this? And believe me, was this on the broadcast proper? No, it was not. This was a UFC event that you have to go no further than the UFC's own YouTube channel to hear that tirade on Wednesday with reporter Alexander Lee. And I guess that would have been uh, my, my my better uh, question if I uh, could have gotten it other. But I got my answer. Like, in, in a nutshell, I got my answer based on Dana. I just wish I didn't, uh, I didn't drop that word leash that everyone jumps on and fair my mistake. But if it wasn't that, it probably would have been something else. As another reporter said to me right after, dude, Dana's very good at this. And, you know, he gave me his answer and and shut that down. So that's that's fine. I got as much insight as I was seeking from Dana White in terms of um, his thought on it. Like I was he was either going to say that or he was going to say, yeah, people don't want to hear that type of thing um, on when they're tuning in for a UFC press event. And he did not say that. So I think the idea that you have um, like any line to expect that is within uh, or is out of bounds. I mean, he's pretty much stating, no, no, there is not that they can say whatever they want and free speech. It also includes hate speech that sometimes it can veer into. And I think it did this past week. Now, as I mentioned, I, I had multiple topics I wanted to get to uh, with Dana, and this was a very limited time that that you have. So uh, on a 180, um, here's me asking about the upcoming ESPN rights renewal because their deal with ESPN goes through 2025. And a couple of months ago, uh, Dana had stated that he was going to be uh, sitting down with ESPN, which is uh, relatively early. Like you've still got a lot of time left on this deal and and a follow-up about a super weekend with WWE. Go ahead. What do you got? I want to go back as well. Uh, a number of months ago, you spoke with a sports business journal about that you, you were going to be sitting down with uh, Jimmy Pataro and talking about the future at ESPN beyond 2025. That was several months ago. At this point, um, are you still in the midst of like early negotiations and are you envisioning post 2025 and ESPN being a big part of those? Yeah, plans? our our, uh, our deal is coming up and yeah, I, I believe that Talks will begin here with ESPN within the next three to four months. And my last question, just because uh, Mark Shapiro's talked a bit about the idea of these kind of super weekends with WWE of going to a site one night, a WWE event, another night, a UFC event. Do you think that that type of thing uh, works? And do you think that there are strategic ways to uh, cross promote between the two when there are distinct audiences as well that come with these products. Could not agree with you more. Uh, I don't think, I, what I think is, if you take a city, I don't know, let's take a city like uh, New York, Los Angeles, and any of the major cities, and you have 
both events the same weekend, right? I think you're going to bring in a lot of people that aren't the same people. And I think it would be very big for uh, some of these major cities. I think, I think it's a, you know, what, what you're looking for is an economic impact. You want hotels to be sold out. You want restaurants to be filled. You want people out shopping and hanging out. Um, and, yeah, I think that the WWE, uh, the UFC, and a lot of other of our properties could, could definitely do that. Would those likely be international destinations or? I think they could be anywhere. anywhere. I think they could be international. I think they could be in the United States. We could literally do that anywhere. We both have, between us and the UFC, we, we both have pretty big followings. And I agree with you that they're not, they're not the same uh, fan base. So there you go. That is Dana White talking about the ESPN deal, which, I mean, as we focus so much on uh, the AEW domestic television package and the raw rights that are still going to be up in the air uh, this year until th- those agreements are up at the end of September. I mean, the UFC package is going to be the next big one to focus upon because, I mean, here is the uh, the value of that ESPN rights package, not just the domestic television rights, but the streaming rights as well that include the UFC pay-per-views is a juggernaut. And it's been as such for ESPN Plus. I mean, it is, to me, um, of great value to both sides to be together and to extend this relationship. But I mean, whenever these rights are up, you're always looking at your increase in, in rights fees and driving those as high as you can. And part of the part of the ingredient to increasing that is the number of bidders that you have and what other interest there is. You have a lot of streaming companies that are just gigantic losses. And what is a pathway forward um, having the UFC package? And here is something that is a proven winner that can drive its fan base to spend money on a product once a month on your streaming service. That's a, that's a hell of a tool to have if you are one of these uh, streaming services, whether you are an Amazon Prime, whether you're a Peacock. But uh, for, for so many reasons, the synergies between ESPN and UFC, I mean, just look at the growth. Uh, UFC has reached um, unbelievable levels uh, business-wise. And I, I think like the relationship with ESPN has aided that. And conversely, I think the UFC, they have helped build ESPN plus, but that's one to watch. And the super weekends have been discussed quite often. And I think you definitely sense from Dana, the fact that, you know, this is a new world in TKO and that you are working alongside a product in WWE that I think Dana White greatly respects and the people attached with WWE. I think he also sees uh, a need to distinguish UFC from WWE and does not want to I don't even know if confuse the audience is, is one, but rather I think wants to respect his audience by not forcing upon a different product that they are averse to. And I think that that is, uh, I think of a, like, at least when you read between the lines at, at times from Dana is the idea that yes, both big, big audiences, but you know, there was a time when that Venn diagram had plenty in the middle. And I think we're at a period where it's much more distinct and it's closer to a sliver now of crossover. And and that could be of, of great value when you're selling these shows. You know, as much like site fees are a huge, huge part of the business plan at TKO is taking these shows, piggybacking off of one another and commanding a large site fee. And it's way more attractive if you can go to a 
municipality to a local government and state that, hey, we are going to bring in two nights, WWE, UFC, and there's going to be, okay, we can fit 60,000 people in a stadium and there's going to be uh, 70% uniques on each given night between the two that are going to bring. Like the crossover, it's not like one for one. It is, we're going to be bringing our own audiences and that's great news for double the hotel space, double the restaurant space. And that I think is the, the big feature here that it's, it's actually great that you have a distinction between the two audiences and that will travel and that you can make a big, big weekend out of. Um, that's certainly something to watch for 2024. So there you go, everyone. That was the, uh, the UFC 297 coverage. And uh, we appreciate all of you tuning in for this show. We are here each month after each UFC numbered event. We will be back after UFC 298 with uh, Eric Marcotte. The UFC will be off next week, and it's a rare weekend off. And then they uh, come back on February the 3rd, and that will be an Apex card that is going to be headlined by Roman Dolidze and Nasruddin Imavov. Also, uh, Hanato Moicano taking on Drew Dober. The weekend after that, February the 10th, it's uh, Jack Hermanson against Joe Pfeiffer. And then 298 is February the 17th at the Honda Center in Anaheim. Alexander Volkanovsky against Ilya Taporia on top for the 145-pound championship. Ian Machado-Gary taking on Jeff Neal. Marab Dwalishvili against Henry Cejudo. Amanda Lemos takes on Mackenzie Dern. Also on this card, Robert Whitaker against Polo Costa. Uh, those being some of the key fights coming up on February the 17th. And then we're into what are going to be several big, big months for the UFC. UFC 299 is a monster. Uh, that is happening March the 9th. And then the big one is UFC 300 on April the 13th in Las Vegas. And uh, Dana White just stating that the main event of UFC 300 will be announced soon. So it is, it is not... Justin Gaethje and Max Holloway headlining this card. It is not Zhang Wei Li and Yao Xiaonan headlining this card. Rather, a main event still to be announced from the UFC coming up soon. So thanks to everyone again for uh, for joining us. And we will be back on Monday night with Rewind to Raw with myself and Wei Ting. And also tonight coming up, it is uh, Nate Milton, Andrew Thompson, and Chris Ely with the NWA podcast. That will be live here at 8 Eastern on the post YouTube channel. And uh, that is it for me. So thanks to everyone for tuning in. This has been your UFC 297 review. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.